good evening and welcome. I'm David Callahan, a senior fellow at Demos. It's great to have you all here for a provocative discussion about higher education that is jointly co-sponsored by Demos and the World Policy Institute. So my advice for the audience tonight is to fasten your seatbelts, and if there are any sacred cows in the room, they should run for their lives. The book is called Higher Education, with a huge question mark dominating the cover and a very uh, unsubtle subtitle, How Colleges Are Wasting Our Money and Failing Our Kids and What We Can Do About It. These days, everybody takes for granted that getting a college education is a good thing. The BA today is the equivalent of a high school diploma a half century ago. And when many of us do fret about higher education, we tend to worry that too many people can't afford to go to college. Here at Demos, we have been uh, working for years to expand access to higher education, most recently with our work on community colleges. Well, tonight, we're going to have a very different kind of conversation about college. Uh, to be sure, the concerns about uh, access will be here and run throughout. But we're also going to hear a remarkably sweeping and harsh critique of higher education, along with some pretty radical ideas for change. The authors of this book are uh, no strangers to this subject. Andrew Hacker has been teaching on campuses for 55 years, first at Cornell University and then at Queens College, 110 consecutive semesters. <laughs> Whatever happened to the sabbatical? Beyond his teaching, he has been a prolific writer. No doubt you've seen his work in the New York Review of Books. He is author of a 1992 bestseller about race, a 1998 book about money, a 2003 book about gender differences. Claudia Dreyfus also knows her way around a campus. She is an adjunct professor of international affairs and media at Columbia University. And before that, she taught at the Graduate Department of English at the City University of New York. And she, too, is a prolific writer. She is best known as a journalist interviewer for the New York Times uh, Science Section. And she is the author, as well, of previous books. In addition, she is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. The World Policy Institute, by the way, is a nonpartisan center for progressive global thought leadership based here in New York and publisher of the World Policy Journal. Demos is a national public policy organization also based here in New York with offices in Washington and Boston. Now the book under discussion tonight has been praised by uh, so many distinguished people in very glowing terms, uh, so glowing in fact that I think it would make the authors blush if I actually read through all the comments from people like Joseph Stiglitz and Barbara Ehrenreich so let's spare them that. You can read the blurb yourself when you buy the book after the event. Instead, let's get on with the discussion. We're not going to have any, any prepared remarks. We're just going to jump straight into the questions. And uh, we're going to do questions with uh, 
with, with me and the authors for a bit, and then we'll, we'll bring you all in. So uh, I, I guess I'd like to start with you, Claudia, and, uh, and ask, um, you know, you spent a lot of time in higher education. In many ways, it's been very good to you. <laughs> and this is a pretty harsh book. And so I guess I'd like to just hear the story of, of how you came to write this book and, and why and, uh, you know, what, what, what you all hope to accomplish with it. Well, the book really began for me when I started teaching in the 90s. And I, I'm, I'm very, I should say, I'm very happy teaching at the school that I teach at now, which is Columbia University's Graduate School of International Affairs. But the place that I taught before was in the middle of a crisis, uh, a political crisis and a funding crisis. And coming from the world of journalism, which is very practical, very go-to-it, very real world, just going into this, what seemed to me an alternate culture that was absolutely the opposite, in the middle of a crisis and unable to cope with it, really troubled me. I, I felt very out of place in that culture. I felt that they were letting the students down in a very, very bad way. I saw that the institution seemed to function only for the tenured faculty, and in my opinion, left everyone else out. And uh, both the students and the adjuncts really suffered. And uh, it wasn't even a question of politics. It, people who worked there on the faculty were, would consider themselves tremendously progressive in many ways, and yet there was something terribly wrong there, and uh, it troubled me. And so when Andrew and I became life partners in, in our real life, we wanted to work together. And here he is a, a, a professor who writes. I'm a writer who professes. <laughs> so, so it would be natural that we'd birth a book. And why not look around our own lives? That's the beginning. Uh, the book is pretty harsh, though. Well, uh, I think what's going on needs a harsh look. I've never encountered a world in all my years as a journalist as unself-reflective as the world of higher education. People do not look at themselves. They do not look at what's wrong. They're closed, unfortunately, to any kind of criticism. And there are tremendous problems. This is a very unexamined part of our society. I think of it as this giant humunculus that runs on its own economy that's somewhere between the healthcare system and the former Soviet Union. There's no rationality to it. It just rolls on its own. And it's eating up more and more of our young people's lives and money. And no, there's no accountability. And I, as an investigative reporter who has written about injustices in other segments of our society, think we should look at it. We look at the healthcare system. Why aren't we looking at this? Well, just before we go further, give us a sense of the resources that are being spent and the scope of the, this establishment. Well, you know, Andrew is the numbers person. <laughs> and I think he should do that. Hmm. Well. Sure, it's a lot. Uh, a 
almost half a trillion dollars as an industry. Uh, what concerns us most is that students, particularly undergraduate students, are far at the end of the line. The chief concern at colleges, not just universities, but colleges too, are the professors, their lives, their, per per their careers, their perquisites. Uh, research is given tremendous emphasis, much more than it should. By the way, we feel there is too much research being done. And one of our uh, you know, suggestions is that it be cut down. I'll just give you an example here. Uh, I have some notes on this now. Um, let me find it here. Um, ah, yes. In a recent 14-year period, now we all love and reveal, revere William Faulkner. We certainly do. Great American novelist. Recent 14-year period. Just ended. 2,781 papers were written by professors on William Faulkner. I'll say that again. <laughs> 2,781 papers written on William Faulkner. Did they have to be written? No. Do they tell us anything we need to know? No. Why were they written? So that assistant professors could be promoted to associate professor and associate professors could become full professors. Now, also, because of this, the students aren't being taught. For example, there's something you've heard of it called the sabbatical. 98% of Americans do not get sabbaticals, but professors do. Take a small call. All right, start with Harvard. Harvard, at this current academic year, in its history department, 20 of its professors are off on paid leave. 20 of its professors. And by the way, this comes out of undergraduates' tuitions. Harvard is bleeding poor, but the professors at wait. At Williams College, which is supposed to emphasize undergraduates, there's a nice little religion department at Williams. Seven professors. Four of them are off on leave this semester doing God knows what. Praying to the God of sabbaticals. Right. Yeah, oh. indeed. At Olympus. <laughs> Taking their place are visitors who don't know anything about the campus, adjuncts who come and go. If your daughter is at Williams and was thinking of writing a senior thesis, uh-uh, the professor is off in Provence. Now, in other words, what we're saying is this has become a bastion of privilege. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, may I add, it's, it's, it's privilege alongside of exploitation because the adjuncts who were not a factor when I went to school. I, I, had, I don't believe I had any adjuncts teaching me when I studied at NYU in the 60s. The adjuncts are doing, at many schools, 70% of the teaching. They are paid something like two to $3,000 a course. That is rank exploitation. We talked to adjuncts who probably were not making minimum wage when you start figuring out what it costs to work. But higher education, particularly on the elite levels, to me looks like a board game. And the professors throw the dice, and they go around the board, and the more famous and the more uh, rewards, that's the word they use, you accumulate, the less you have to teach. That's the goal of the board game, to teach as little as possible. So, where I, how did something as satisfying, as joyful, as life-giving, as teaching, 
become so debased in this culture. I don't understand it. I love teaching, and yet it's considered almost punishment within the culture of the professoriate. Uh, for example, in take mathematics, and by the way, we're supposed to be getting our young people interested in mathematics so we can beat the Chinese or whatever we're supposed to do. Uh, at American universities today, only 10% of undergraduates are taught their introductory mathematics course by a regular faculty member. 90% are taught by graduate students and adjuncts who come and go. Why aren't they taught by regular? Because the regular faculty feel they're too good to teach freshmen and sophomores. They feel they are so important in this field called mathematics that they will not teach the introductory course. And because they have tenure, they cannot be made to teach the introductory course. Sciences and in mathematics, uh, which we very much support. And if you listen to uh, the National Academies of Sciences, there's a great crisis in that you know, Americans don't want to do math and don't want to do science, and will we ever beat the Chinese? Uh, and yet, this whole area of, of undergraduate teaching is completely neglected and thought to be very much unimportant. We have somebody in the book who was in charge of undergraduate teaching at a Midwest college, and he had nothing but overseas graduate students who were doing the teaching who didn't speak English very well. Well, for most American young people, calculus is already a foreign language. But if you have them taught by somebody who really is new to the culture, doesn't speak English very well, you really have problems. And when this particular person who was in our book said uh, to his boss, you know, it's just so unfair to the students. You've got to give our graduate teaching fellows six months of remedial English. The answer was, that's too expensive. But most of the people doing the undergraduate teaching as graduate assistants are, at this point, in these areas overseas. Oh, uh, yes. Currently in engineering, 60% of the PhDs are to foreign students, 60% uh, over half. And by the way, uh, this is in large measure because young Americans don't want to do engineering. Why don't they? Of the kids who start engineering education, almost half of them drop out. Why? Because engineering teachers are the pits. They are the worst teachers we have. They don't care. They are arrogant. And nobody blows the whistle on them. In fact, you can't. When people have tenure, there's nothing you can do about it. At Harvard, for example, where the teaching is really terrible. Uh, uh, they, no. they don't have an engineering school. Uh, yes, they, they do. do. Every oh. Ivy League college has an engineering school. Harvard hides it, but it's got one. Uh, uh, we talked with a group of undergraduates at Harvard. And we talked with undergraduates everywhere. And uh, we asked them about their classes. And they looked at us. They were amused. They say, no, no, we're majoring in the Harvard Crimson. They were all working on the paper. They don't even go to the class. They learn from each other. I'm, I'm sorry if there's feedback there. Uh, I, I think at a lot of the elite schools, the kids end up learning from each other. But let me get to this thing about the professors, which, uh, you know, the kids are fine. It's the professors we worry about. Um, <laughs> Harvard set up a committee, a commission. No, they call it a task force. 
to investigate teaching at Harvard because there are so many complaints about how bad it was. And, you know, and the professor, by the way, the task force was made up of professors with name chairs, you know, Cabot, Lodge, all those names. They didn't have a single student on the task force, not a single junior professor, not a single teaching assistant, just these top professors. Well, they finally decided, yes, some teaching needs improvement, so they suggested that professors be videoed, taped, filmed, and watch themselves in the class. We thought that was a great idea. But then we read further in the report, and it said, but this should only be done for junior, non-tenured faculty. <laughs> Thou shalt we, not make a graven image of a tenured professor. No, no, we, asked, we asked them, and they said, there's no way we can ask a tenured professor to allow film in his class. And you began to say, who's this college for? So all this uh, discussion of the insularity and privilege uh, in the ivory tower may make some of our audience members think that they walked into a seminar at Cato, not Demos. <laughs> and uh, and actually leads me to ask the question of, you know, just how great is that privilege and just how much more accountability and competition do we do we want? I mean, the, the, the top professor in their field, if they're really lucky, May, may make at the peak uh, as much money as your 25-year-old your uh, law associate might make at a corporate law firm. The entire uh, payroll of a, of a lot of these academic departments is probably not as great as what some you know, 30-year-old hedge fund managers make every year. And we live in a time in which market forces uh, uh, are steamrolling over just about every sector of our society. So I guess I... I anticipating some of the audience questions. I, I guess I want to put the question to you. Uh, you know, why are you picking on higher education as a, as a place where there's too much privilege and not enough well, accountability? If I just go in for one thing you said, because David, I'm afraid you're dead wrong. Uh, <laughs> I forget the exact page in there, but a Yale professor makes $1,800 an hour. It's in the book, 1800 an hour. A Yale professor teaches what we call one and two. One semester he teaches one class, and then poor guy has to teach two classes the next semester. Sabbatical, every seven years, not at Yale, every three years he's off. So we figured out, because the Yale professor makes over 200,000 a year on average, you know, when you add in benefits and all the rest. We, add, we added up all his classroom you know, performance and all the rest, and we figured he is paid $1,800 for every hour he teaches. Now, if he says, hey, I have to prepare my classes, ha, gives the same lectures over again. Uh, and office hours, maybe if he's not consulting in Abu Dhabi. Uh, we're going to stick with $1,800 an hour, and I think that's, not many lawyers make that. So when you uh, add in all the time he spent as a graduate student, undergraduate, uh, as a lowly paid assistant professor to get into that, um, I mean, do you think that he's overpaid? Well, I, the, the point is that it's not poverty row. And many professors, senior professors, act as if they, uh, well, I, one person was telling me who is a senior professor, he has a 
brother who's a hedge fund trader, and Thanksgivings are hell in his family because he's considered the, the poor person. But he's not at 200000 a year. Let's get real about this. This is not poverty row. It's not poverty row if you're working in an Ivy League college, making six figures, getting 20% of your mortgage paid by the university, uh, getting tuition remission for your kids, getting a sabbatical every three years. Very few professions have those kind of perks. And yet this is a field where people, for some reason, feel victimized. I don't understand it. They are not coal miners. Uh, this, for people at the top of the field, and that's a lot of people, it is a very good living. Now, maybe we now have come to live in a society where everybody is so envious of the very rich and wants to be that very rich that they consider themselves poor at 200,000, but I don't. You know, we might be a little more sympathetic if they cared about the students that much. For example, we were at one very prestigious university, and we were talking with the students there. And uh, he said, oh yeah, we, uh, I'm in a seminar with 14 students and, and a professor, full professor. And we said, oh, hey, that's pretty good. And he said, yeah, well, there's a problem. That full professor has a full-time teaching assistant who reads the seminar papers and grades them. The professor does not even read his students' seminar papers. Now, if that isn't malpractice, I don't know what is. And I think one of the things that, I, if I may speak for Andrew, uh, when he began teaching his, in his career at Cornell, that it wasn't the case from everything you've told me that even the biggest stars taught an undergraduate section, a large one. And I think maybe that's why people come up to you on the street all the time, Andrew, and say, Dr. Hacker, Dr. Hacker, I had you for Government 101 at Cornell in 1961, and I never forgot it. That's a great joy. That's a great pleasure. And you know these mandarins who are so aloof from the undergraduates I don't get what they're about as people. I don't know why they're not giving themselves in that way. May I address another point you, you made, David, that, uh, that, this is, uh, that we sound a bit like conservatives when, in fact, perhaps politically we're not. Um, I don't think university reform in higher education is a left-right issue. It may seem so, and I think uh, people on the left and people on the right treat it that way. I think a lot of people on the left feel this is where our people went to work and it's sacrosanct and you can't criticize it. I think a lot of people on the right feel, ah, they're a leftist, let's get them. But that, neither of that is really the issue. The issue is young people aren't getting treated right in their education and they're often made to indenture themselves for the rest of their lives through these student loans. Could I pick up with some numbers on that? Yes, please. Yes. Uh, now, okay, let me have this here. <clears throat> Since we used 1980 as a base year, 30 years ago, not that far ago, take a nice little college called Pomona out in California. It's a good liberal arts college. Its tuition is now 2.9, three times in real dollars, it's tripled in real dollars since 1980. Williams College, 3.2. University of Southern California, 
getting up to quadrupled in real dollars. Now, what's that money being spent on? Well, part of it is professor salaries. In that 30-year period, professor salaries at, say, Stanford have gone up 64% in real dollars. Real people, the rest of us, well, I'm sorry, professor, but real people, their wages have gone up in real dollars 5% in those last 30 years. At Stanford, 64%. Now you begin to ask, why? Uh, is it that they're such valuable commodities, they'll leave to run hedge funds? No, they're just there, and they make the kids pay. Now here's the second part. Why do colleges raise tuition as they do? Because, you know, it's uh, up there. Tuition itself, 40000 Living away from home, another 15000 We're talking 55000 just for the year before you take a ski trip. The reason why they have felt, colleges, that they can raise the salary is they tell the students, go take out loans. And this is what's new and this is what's atrocious. Two-thirds of the students getting BAs this year are graduating in debt at the age of 22. Sometimes as much as $60,000, $70,000 in debt at the age of 22. Why are they doing this? Because the colleges keep ramping up their tuition to pay the professors to teach or to not to teach. And we won't even get into administrators and football teams. And it's the kids. Imagine, this is like subprime. 22-year-olds, and a lot of them are going to default. It's hard to go bankrupt, because the banks made sure that bankruptcy is difficult in this. You know, I shudder to think what's going to happen when these loans come due. Yes, we, we know of a young woman who went to my alma mater, NYU, with a full tuition scholarship, she thought. She also had the chance to go to SUNY Stony Brook. She wanted pre-med. She feels she did not have a good four years in the sciences at NYU because NYU is very good in the arts, but their undergraduate in, uh, graduate school of arts and sciences is kind of ragged, in my opinion. Uh, and she somehow graduated with 70000 in debt. I asked how she could do that with a full scholarship, and she explained it to me. And you know, she didn't know about the health insurance. The price of the dorm went up. She didn't realize some of the scholarship was work-study, and, and the pre-med was difficult. The long and the short is she graduated with 60000 and then she had to take a, a deferment, and it's up to seventy. I don't know if she's ever going to get to medical school. She said to me, very poignantly, I wish I'd gone to Stony Brook like the other kids in my high school. And that leads to another question. Why are parents so debasing the idea of public higher education, which is far more efficient and is, is cheaper and is um, often uh, a very viable alternative? And I think the answer is, and there are parents who are culpable of this, it's snobbery and it's wrong. Now, wait a second, dear. Uh, dear. Even public education is that not that much cheaper. Uh, okay, you go to Penn State, tuition is fifteen thousand a year. That's a lot less than forty thousand, but you're living away from home. And the price of sorry, the cost of room, board, food, and dorms 
has just escalated. It's twice what it used to be, and, uh, and again, in real dollars. And for example, I have uh, one, uh, we looked at menus at uh, various colleges. Uh, one college offers, by the way, remember some of you went to college, it used to be mystery meat uh, in, a, you know, in a cafeteria with a metal tray. Now you have at one college on the menu, Dijon chicken, butternut squash soup. At another college, African couscous, orange ginger, Tufo steak, Tufo steak. You know, this is for 18 and 19 year old undergraduates. Part of it is the arms race with amenities that colleges feel they have to offer this. At University of Houston, five story climbing wall. All that's in the tuition. Washington State, a public university, has a jacuzzi that holds 50 student bodies. You know, that's, again, higher education. Uh, Kenyon College, nice little college in Gambier, Ohio, built a $70 million athletic emporium. It has a 20-lane swimming pool. Can you imagine 20 lanes for a swimming pool? Now, what's paying for this? You know, that's why tuition is going up. I'm going to get into your uh, reform proposals in a second, but first, I, I wonder if you could address this question I've long had about higher education, which is, why is it that institutions which aren't answerable to shareholders, do not have a bottom line in the corporate sense, behave in such a rapacious fashion? As you described, they are uh, exploiting their, their, adjunct, uh, their, their adjunct professors. That sort of it's, it's, it's very much of a sweatshop environment. Uh, they, they won't let them unionize in, in, in a number of schools. And as you've just described, they're kind of upselling and exploiting their consumers uh, and there's a tremendous, even among the tenured faculty, tremendous inequality and a star system, just like you might find in the private sector. So I'm wondering, what are the dynamics that turn uh, these nonprofit institutions into institutions that behave in many of the same ways as corporations? Well, so we sometimes think if they only behaved like corporations, it would be a little more rational. There, there's no accountability. The way I see it is it's a giant machine that just rolls on its own energy and its own dynamics. And no one ever says no. And it, since it's particularly unregulated and it's outside uh, even the minimal regulations that corporations have, and it, even the market doesn't exactly function there, uh, things just happen for their own reasons. And again, the only analogy I can, that people could get their arms around, perhaps, is the healthcare system, which functions similarly. But even the healthcare system is somewhat more rational. I think just things happen. People make their careers by proposing grandiose schemes. Uh, uh, they, nobody's ever accountable when they fail. Uh, the economics, for instance, of the elite Ivies right now who've lost so much money with the craziest, wildest speculation that no sensible organization should have engaged in. Uh, who pays for it? No one really does. In the end, they raise their tuition. And then they say, oh, well, most of our students come here on scholarships. I don't know how many times I've heard that story rationalizing the high tuition in the Ivies. But what's never said is that when Harvard raises its tuition, uh, 
it, it raises the tuition for the whole system. Everybody follows. Could, could I add one? Uh, that it's, it's, not a, it's not scholarships. It's uh, We call them discounts. It's discounts. Uh, they say, hey, oh, it's 40000 for the sticker price. We'll take 5000 off for you. And they call that a scholarship or financial aid. But I'll give you a simple answer, David, as to why colleges have us in their grip. Only they can offer and bestow a bachelor's degree. And this is the great marker in American society. Here it goes, vertical. On one side are the people with bachelor's degrees, on the other side, people who don't have them. If there's any class system, that's it. Now, parents, and in many cases, they're youngsters, want, the parents certainly want their kids to have a BA. If they don't have a BA, my God, your kid will end up, we used to call it the Bowery, you know. I'm not sure what the uh, current counterpart of it is. Walmart. So the parents are willing to mortgage, mortgage their own kid's future to get that bachelor's degree. Now the bachelor's degree doesn't offer you, you know, soaring up to the firmament, but it will at least keep you on that side of the divide. Even with unemployment today, you know, bachelors have half the rate as non-bachelors. Now what we'd add to this is, we have a chapter which we entitle The Golden Dozen. We picked out 12 colleges. The Ivy League, there are eight of them, you know which they are, and then Stanford, Duke, Amherst, and Williams. These are the places where proper, upper middle class, professional parents want their kids to be. For example, they're at the country club, if people still go to country clubs. And somebody asks them, uh, where is Jennifer now? If you're able to say, Jennifer is at Yale, you get a congratulatory nod and smile. If you were to say that Jennifer is at Earlham College, you get, oh. <laughs> and then you have to explain, Earlham really has very good internships or something like that. So, uh, by the way, um, in or, this, or if you said the University of North Dakota, uh, what would you get? Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even be in the country club. Uh, I see. Uh, now, what we did was we, one of the things, so there, a lot of parents are paying for the prestige. They really are, because they hope that this will loft their child up, not just with a BA, but to the top of the BA list. Well, I won't go into this in any detail, but we, decided to study one class of students from a golden dozen school. I'll tell you what it is, it was Princeton. We picked a Princeton class which had 913 students admitted, and we tracked them all the way through Princeton and then into their later life and gave them enough time to, you know, uh, what should I say, make a mark in life. Princeton's mantra is, we produce national leaders, and it is true. They have produced Ralph Nader, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he's a leader, uh, Eugene O'Neill, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Woodrow Rump Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, sure. Yes. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Hey, Princeton has 88,000 graduates. It's bound to have at least one Rumsfeld. Now, but we looked at this class of 900, and I'm afraid they disappointed us. There really weren't national leaders there. Nobody was a CEO, nobody was a federal judge. 
they turned out to be rather average. And this in a way made me feel rather good because um, it meant that certain Princeton people are kind of downwardly mobile, not to the Bowery, but downwardly mobile, whereas people from my Queens College are coming up and passing them. Uh, I'm sorry to report that um, half of the billionaires who've made their fortune in finance have degrees from just three of the top business schools. Uh, uh, so there's, there's, there's actually a, a one out of ten billionaires in America <coughs> a, a graduated from uh, Har Harvard University. So I, I think that there is some... No, that's the, David, that's the business schools. Uh, the, if you mean Wharton, Harvard, and Columbia. Now, actually, the business schools are very good about taking in a catchment from people from... Okay, one more thing just on the book. We looked at Harvard Law School. We did research. We really did. Um, yeah. <laughs> we took eight years of Harvard Law School and we looked at the 3,000 students who were admitted to Harvard Law School in that eight-year period. By the way, Harvard, and we wanted to know what undergraduate colleges they went to. Harvard didn't want to give us this information, but I have friends who got it. And what we found was that Harvard Law School works it both ways. Half of their places are reserved for the golden dozen, you know, our types. But the other half of Harvard's admissions are from everywhere. Valparaiso State College, Valdosta in Georgia, Linfield in Oregon. And one of the things we say to people is, if you go to Linfield or Valdosta and you do well there, and the professors like you, and they write letters for you, Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School will admit you. And that's why we have no problems saying, go to a lesser known school. Uh, I want to get to, your, to uh, the audience questions in a moment, but first I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk about some of your perform, reform proposals, because I, I know you have some, some pretty uh, uh, provocative suggestions. So I guess I'd like to start with the question of tenure. Uh, and your proposal to um, uh, abolish tenure or scale it back, and maybe we could... Well, obviously, when you're dealing with a, a giant system as complex as this, uh, and we know this from the healthcare reform efforts, that there isn't a single fix that's going to solve things. And this, I, I, I personally feel that higher education is far more complex than healthcare as a system. Uh, so that, but... We, we sat with each other and we said, well, what could, what are some, some steps that could fix things? And the, the thing that obviously came forward was abolish tenure. Uh, and it's not that we think we, it, we're going to herald in the dark ages in the Spanish Inquisition and bring back McCarthyism. Uh, but we really looked at it and we did not see a lot of examples of it protecting actual freedom of expression, uh, it's more like an employment perk than it is anything else, and a very good one at that. But there are lots of schools that, or there are at least some that don't have tenure, and the dark ages haven't descended. We'd like to see, perhaps, tenure replaced with long-term contracts, because obviously you're asking people to move to rural situations or different towns, and you certainly for research, real research, scientific research, for instance, you need a long-term commitment. Um, but 
this thing of lifetime employment we think is deadly. And I have to tell you, wherever we went, students told us that their favorite professors were not the tenured ones. Those were the ones who, as you would expect, tended not to care and tended to leave it up to the students. Uh, they said the adjuncts were their favorite professors, but the adjuncts are on a treadmill just trying to survive and can't really serve them as they should. They often don't even have offices. Um, and we think that what protects freedom of expression has a lot more to do with whether or not presidents exercise real leadership, which is another question. Um, in addition to ending tenure as... Now, could I just put yeah. in one thing on tenure uh, here? Uh, academic freedom, that it protects it, just the opposite. If you take the young people who are going into the academic profession, first as graduate students and then as assistant professors, they are careful, controlled, cautious. They don't say a single thing that might get them in trouble with anyone. In other words, this tenure, this quest for tenure, squelches them. And by the time they reach the age of 40 and they finally get tenure, the stuff's been wrung out of them. Now, once you give people tenure, in most colleges, they never leave. Part of the reason is nobody wants them, but they never leave. We studied three colleges, uh, nice small ones, Middlebury, Bowdoin, and Reed. Two-thirds of the faculty there have been there at least 25 years. At least 25 years, and many more. In other words, you get a graying faculty of tenured people who spend all the time debating great academic issues like the allocation of parking spaces. Now, we really think it's bad for education. 98% of Americans, including I think yourself, David, don't have tenure, and they get by. They really do. Maybe it brings out something. This is a cocoon. Do you know how many people have academic tenure in, in this country? 300,000. We're not just talking about Yale and Princeton. Everywhere, Valdosta State, Sonoma State, 300,000 people have this cocoon that nobody else has. So of course they're going to scream bloody murder if you want to take it away from them. They'll tell us we're McCarthyites. Oh, well, we're, we're anti-intellectual. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. we're anti-intellectual. Let me ask about the broader accountability issue of, you know, as you said, this is sort of a giant machine, in your words, out of control. Nobody is accountable to anybody. Uh, what are some possible m mechanisms for accountability and, and accountable to who and how? Well, you know, again, to go to the state schools, uh, most university presidents at state colleges do function under some constraints from the legislatures. And it, it, they have very difficult relationships with their state legislatures, but there is more accountability. Um, I, as difficult as it is, I don't have a master plan to solve this, but I can see what's wrong. Uh, and I think maybe one of the answers is we citizens have to become better consumers, just like we did in healthcare. You know, 30 years ago, people didn't ask their doctors any questions. And people, when they got crazy bills from the hospitals, 
didn't ask the hospitals questions. And I don't know a person in the room probably has been hospitalized who ever has gotten a normal bill from a hospital afterwards. But you know now to ask about it, and you know to fight with them, and you know to negotiate. And we don't do that with higher ed. So I think one of the things that has to happen is uh, higher ed consumers have to start thinking of themselves that way. But I think also parents and students have to change in what they demand of the universities. Uh, I snuck onto an awful lot of uh, parents' trips at, at universities. And at, you know, the season is almost beginning where they take these tours of New England. And I snuck onto a lot of those. And the parents really asked unbearable questions. They never, I never heard once anyone ask about teaching. Parking space, dorms. Uh, equipment, the size of the swimming pool, were there stables at the college? I mean, were they additioning the kids for Club Med? I mean, there has to be some discernment there, too. I never heard once people ask, what kind of professors do you have here? Can I go to a lecture? Nor did the universities particularly offer their star professors as lectures to say, you know, this is our product. This is what we're putting out. No, they're sending them to this very lavish four-year emancipation where they, they get sports and, and lavish living and geniality, and they become um, better, uh, more sociable people. But if you ask me, that's not how to keep up with China. By the way, they, they don't get sports. Uh, just take yeah. the University of Illinois. Uh, you know. Big state university, has a bunch of athletic teams. Only 3% of the Illinois University students are on an athletic team. Only 3%. And I'm including volleyball. The other 97% are supposed to sit and cheer in the stadiums. In other words, uh, and maybe grow obese. Now, but Claudia got me thinking about something here. The state legislators. You know, if I were a member of the state legislature, let's say in the state of Missouri, I would ask the state of Missouri, which by the way has not just the flagship, but has about 10 other regional universities, why it is that 40% of the freshmen you admit never get a degree. In other words, a 40% dropout rate. Only 60% end up with the BAs. And I'd say to them, what are you doing wrong? And don't blame the students. Well, part of it, you know, are you teaching them? Are you being interesting teachers? This is a whole thing we haven't got into. During our travels, we always went to classes. And we always sat in classrooms. And we watched the teaching. And as a result, we have a chapter which is entitled Teaching, colon, Good, Great, and Abysmal. And we saw teaching that we just felt so sorry for the students. It wasn't the professors weren't prepared. Oh, they read from their script. Or, sorry, the PowerPoints. Oh, don't get us into that. <laughs> Higher education looks now in the future as if it's going to be in the dark. Shades down, lights out, PowerPoints. But, and the, this is an important question, and I'm not sure what we can do with it. How do you make better teachers? You know, I really think the teachers in third grade and 11th grade are better teachers than our college teachers. You know? And uh, 
I'm worried about this because so many of the professors we've met just don't have the temperament for being an interesting teacher. See, I think the kind of person who makes a good scholar may not be the kind of person who makes a good teacher. Um, not in every case, we're talking about thousands of people, but very often a lot of people become academics because, yes, the stereotype is true. They're introverted, they're good scholars, they don't want to relate to people, and for them, what, you're going to turn me into a performer? I'm not a comedian, I'm not Seinfeld. They look down on people who are actually good communicators with their students. Well, there's something wrong there. It's a bad match. But I think if the culture of the university valued teaching strongly, if that were said to be not just lip service, but really job one, it would change. Last question before we go to the uh, yes, they uh, want to audience. Do two do too many young people go to college today, or too few? No, we, no. Let, let Andrew, the Jeffersonians speak. Right, okay. Uh, Claudia and I are, it's amazing, you can only write a book, you can only write a book together if you really agree on fundamentals. We are both born-again Jeffersonians. We, be, not believe, we know everyone has a mind, everyone has an intellect, everyone has curiosity, and we're talking now, let's take just an age group, all, all 4 million, let's say, 14-year-olds or 18-year-olds, all of them. We believe everyone, if they wanted to, is capable of college work. Now, we're not going to force them into it. Some people might be better going back at the age of 28 or 38. We understand that. But if you have good teachers, and we've seen enough to know that it's possible, they can awaken even people who went to the crummiest high schools. You know, it's uh, too easy to blame K through 12. Uh-uh. You know, uh, there's a friend of mine who teaches at my college, which is a city college, and he said, friends of his ask him, are your students any good? With a kind of a sneer. And he replies, I make them good. That's what we're talking about. I totally agree. <laughs> I had wonderful students when I taught at City College, and I have wonderful students at Columbia, some of whom are here tonight. Thank you for coming. Well, I, I guess you know there's a common critique out there that uh, it's, it's hard to find people in the trades in a lot of places. You can't find a good plumber or electrician, or uh, do you think that there should be more emphasis on preparing people uh, for trade jobs, like you see in Germany, more vocational education, less emphasis on this sort of, this ideal of universal access no, to higher education. No, we want plumbers who have read Plato, Aristotle, Jane Austen, and Joyce Carol Oates. And Simone de Beauvoir. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's a good note to go to questions. Uh, let's start back here. Thank you. Um, I'm Charles Cobb with the Committee for Economic Disclosure and, and, and um, is, sorry, Committee for Economic Development, but <laughs> a, point, a point of full disclosure here. I happen to be a member of that dud class of 1973 at uh, Princeton, 
And uh, notwithstanding all the wonderful things you said about uh, my classmates, uh, I want to thank both of you for writing the book. Um, I, I told Andrew and Claudia I read it a month ago on my Kindle. It is absolutely superb, and I hope all of you will, uh, will read it. You raise very important points at an extremely important time uh, when a lot of questions are being raised about post-secondary education. My question is this. In all of your uh, research and, uh, and conversations, did you ever run into people in the post-secondary endeavor who approached it from the perspective of human capital? In other words, if you look at the billions of dollars that are being spent in post-secondary education, whether it's private, for-profit, not-for-profit, Kaplan, et cetera, do people actually think about training young people from the perspective of human capital, the jobs they're going to have, and their ability to be effective citizens in our democracy. Thank you. Well, I think there are many things going on. There, there, everything's going on. It's such a big system. And there are people who think that way. Uh, but there are also, I think the main thing that happens on campus is this life of its own dynamic. Things just happen. It's like in the healthcare system where you'll have one county with five MRIs and nobody knows why. And so there isn't really a guiding sense of mission to most colleges and universities. Uh, you'll sometimes get a leader who has a guiding sense of his or her own mission, uh, which is to build another stadium or to expand the real estate of the school or to get a graduate school that the school doesn't really need to produce more unemployed PhDs, which we're producing two-thirds too many of. Um, but the, there isn't this real sense of this part of our system being a tool of democracy, which we think inherently it is. I mean, if we have a really educated, smart citizenry, you don't have to train them in citizenship. They will know it themselves. They will know how to think because they've been exposed to, to the best that humankind has, has created. But we're not doing that now. And, and even in the job training kind of areas which we oppose, a lot of it is just silly and trendy. You know, there'll be one school that gets into doing CSI training because lots of kids want it. They watch the series on TV. There aren't even that many jobs in the area, but uh, this West Virginia public university had a huge CSI uh, department. They'll be doing uh, golf management bachelor's degrees uh, and a lot of sports management since people like sports and particularly people at universities seem to like sports. Uh, but uh, the, there's no rhyme or reason to almost anything that happens in this sector. You know, Charles, on human capital, uh, one of the reasons why we favor, ideally, liberal arts for everyone is because it doesn't focus you on computers or on golf management, for that matter. Uh, what we simply say, is, at one point, somebody asked was, what's your ideal for these young people? How, what should they be like when they come out? And I found myself saying, I'd like them to be interesting people. Yeah, why not, you know? And I have a feeling that if you have interesting people, that's going to be capital. Some of them will be poets, 
you know, like Oscar Wilde. Hey, that's interesting. And by the way, there's quite a wild industry now. Uh, so uh, I think here, I'm not sure that even the academic world at this point is prepared to, is ready, has the equipment to prepare people for the next generation economically. Because I'm not sure there's that much uh, brain power in there directed to that. But I'm willing to keep an open mind on it. A question down here. I hope I can figure out my notes. I feel like I've been sitting in class. Um, I have been teaching for the last, I guess it's nine or 10 years, as an adjunct at a local university. And I've been horrified to see that um, there are a number of adjuncts who teach at more than one school. And they come in our faculty lounge and they look harried and they meet students and teach their classes and then they run to the next school. And I don't see how that can be good for anybody, but it's happening. Um, the last year that I taught, which was last year, uh, and I got sick before the semester was over. I don't think the students had anything to do with it. But I'm not really sure. Um, but for both semesters last year, I taught students who, um, the department chairman asked me if I would be willing to do this, students who came in at a very low end of uh, performance. And I felt like it was hopeless. Um, I've been teaching lots of years. I started many years ago in Virginia in an elementary school. I don't think I had students in elementary school all those years ago who were as poorly prepared as these kids I taught last year. It, it was just amazing. Uh, they were discipline problems as well as um, intellectual challenges. And I don't know what the answer is there. Um, I'm glad to hear about born again Jeffersonians because I did my master's at UVA and, and that's, that's good to hear. Um, it seems to me that we have lost our um, appreciation for the liberal arts. And this is where we need to be focusing because we need to know language and we need to know history. And we need to have an appreciation of the arts. And then we can do these other things, but if we can only do the other things, I, I think the future, I feel really discouraged for probably the first time in my life because um, it seems to me that the outlook is not good and I don't know, maybe it's because I've been sick and I'm just not entirely well yet or something. I wanted, but anyway, thank you. Just, just to take one part of that, uh, <coughs> that comment um, and ask about the, this plight of the adjunct professor and the exploitation of this uh, uh, 
pool of labor and the overproduction of PhDs by the academic system when there's not jobs out there, creating a bigger and bigger pool. I mean, it's kind of a classic kind of capitalist <laughs> exploitation model, right? And so I wonder, what can be done to, to change that insidious dynamic? Well, for starters, uh, all these tenured faculty members with self-governance should make part of their platform uh, not accepting the underpayment of their and the exploitation of the uh, adjunct faculty. You know, the, the tenured raises happened in tandem with the taking on of this, this migratory labor pool. It happened at the same time. And uh, when, when you talk to tenured faculty, they have the same rationalizations that you would hear about other kinds of exploitation. They're not as good. Or they see them as invisible. Uh, they're rude to them. Uh, almost every adjunct that I've talked to in, in, in the course of uh, doing that chapter, which was mostly one of those chapters that I wrote, we, sometimes divided tests, uh, they always said to me, you know, not only are we underpaid, but everyone is always rude to us. Even the secretaries know we're lower on the scale on the pecking order. They're rude to us. Just the lack of dignity, and uh, that's part of it. But uh, the, there's a lead into the problems of teaching unprepared students. You can't have people who are working at six or seven classes in a semester in order to just pay the rent have the time and the patience to work with people who do need more, more help. Uh, so I think these things feed into each other, and they're not separate. You know, there's one, there are several, but one reason for the overproduction of graduate students and PhDs. Professors get status points for teaching graduate students and graduate seminars. You do not get status points for teaching sophomores. As a result, professors attract as many graduate students as they can to fill up their seminars so they can supervise their dissertations, have you know, uh, disciples for their discipline. By the way, one of the reasons why we bring in 700,000 foreign students, oh, there are almost, from other places, almost all in the sciences and engineering, so that the professors can fill up their seminars. If we didn't have those overseas students, the professors would have to teach undergraduates, and that would be the kiss of death. And so those, those overseas students who come very often come as graduate teaching assistants. That's part of what you do if you're a graduate student. And that's where the entropy and the misteaching also happens, uh, because they don't have the language skills. Um, it, it's a cycle that just keeps feeding itself. Uh, by the way, just one last uh, statistic on this. I'm going to tell you how many universities in this country award PhDs. How many? You think it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Michigan? 280 universities award doctorates. That includes Eastern Tennessee, Southern Kentucky, Northern Missouri. You know, and why? Because the professors get status by supervising 
doctoral students. And, and a newly installed university president will say, we need a graduate school, or like we need a stadium. You, you just don't make points as a president by not building things. Let's uh, get two, two or three questions on the table, just so we had uh, right back there. And then you. <clears throat> Um, my name is Phyllis Weiss Hazaro, and my professional work is on focused on improving the working relations among the generations in the workplace. So we are concerned with how people uh, are prepared. Um, by way of introduction, I was a government major at Cornell and one of your students. So, and my son went to Arizona State, so which is one of the schools that you selected as being ones that you like. My question, however, is something else um, related to tenure and such. The demographics are that uh, one-third of the faculties, the universities, will be eligible for retirement in the next 10 years. So I'm wondering if you see that as an opportunity for changing the tenure system or will it be a problem because everybody is going to be running after the stars and so they will continue to offer them more and more perks and all these incentives? How do you think that will be affecting when you have a third of the, of the faculties ch uh, changing over? Let's hold that answer and take, get two more questions. Uh, yes, yeah. Um. I think there's a lot of different things that could be done to the universities. The one that's, you know, when I went shopping for a car as an 18-year-old, I didn't know anything about cars. I would not know what questions to ask when I was buying something, whether it be college or a car. But there's this magazine, Consumer Reports, which will gladly tell you everything about what you don't know and which ones are good and which ones are bad. Do you think there should be something like a Consumer Reports for universities and colleges? Um, I know there's the U.S. News and World Reports, which will tell you which are more expensive and which are... They will the tell you what other university presidents think of each other. Yes, which is <laughs> just, you know, thinking Mercedes is good without actually testing it. And, yes. Well, it's Daimler telling okay, Mercedes then we, then, then, we, then we had it. Then we had a question here. Wait for the mic, please. Hi, my name is Carol Spomer, and I have a question and a very quick comment. Um, uh, the question is, you've talked about how they can in further increase their expense by paying adjuncts more. And I was an adjunct, and I couldn't live on, on the money. So although they wanted me to continue, I just couldn't do that before. Um, but that's the aside. The question is, in what ways do you realistically see them able to start cutting the budget and reducing the need for tuition increases for students? Well, I think if they increased adjuncts' pay, it wouldn't, it wouldn't break the system. I, I remember my, my first job in the 60s, one of my first jobs was as a union organizer for the drug and hospital workers here in New York, who l worked at poverty wages without question. They were exempt from all the minimum wage uh, benefits and, and laws at, because they were, worked for nonprofits. Once they unionized and, and were able to get more recognition for their needs, the hospitals didn't go out of business. Now, some of them do for other reasons, but that wasn't it. And I think if they paid living wages to, to, uh, to this educated migrant 
workforce, it wouldn't break them either. The first thing they'd have to start doing to save money is not do these expensive caprices. That includes sports. Um, that includes all, any crazy thing, you know, a, a center in uh, one of the emirates that Michigan uh, State opened up or that George Mason also opened up, and they didn't even know who they were dealing with. They didn't know the names of their co-investors. I mean, where, what, what world does that happen in? Uh, no wonder they went out of business. These are public universities that had to close down these overseas branches when they weren't taking care of business at home. Okay, let me give you just, there are so many places you could cut. Whether you do it is another story. For example, University of Texas has a volleyball team. Well, okay, but when you add in flying off to play in tournaments and all the rest, I didn't believe this. I had to read this three times and make a phone call. <laughs> University of Texas spends $57,000 a year on each volleyball player. That's, you know, imagine. And why do we have volleyball? Is it a liberal art? Uh, well, mm, uh, hey, uh, all right, let's uh, take the guys' sports. Uh, the average size of football squads from 1982 to the present, the average size of a football squad has grown from 82 players to 102 players. They have added 20 players. Imagine how the bench has to be expanded. Why? Because the coach has such esoteric strategies that he needs 102 players to go. There are 629 college football teams. Only 14 of them cover their cost. We could get rid of them. We recommend, we give high star ratings to Haverford, Swarthmore, Brandeis, Emory, Marquette, because they all got rid of football. <laughs> if you could do that, you can hire a lot of assistant professors and pay your adjuncts better. We have just a, just a minute or two left. Um, there were some other questions that were asked about whether this is an opportunity to break the back of the tenure system and also whether we need some kind of consumer reports uh, to uh, ensure more accountability. If you could we, address we that. We need wise consumers. We need active consumers. Consumers, uh, consumers reports is part of consumers union. And we need, we need educational consumers to ask questions. Uh, by the way, when I bought my first car, I was as ignorant as you, but I brought Fred along with me, my pal, because he knew cars from cars. Don't you have a friend named Fred? Well, yes, but cars should be the same coming off the line, evaluating the outcome of an education. Oh, come on. We bought used cars. Uh, <laughs> uh, Didn't we? Anyway. But, but I, you know, I think the strategy parents need to do it now isn't, isn't simple. You need to ask people about good experiences. There are good people in every institution, and there are awful people, and there are good situations and bad ones. So you need to be smart, and you need to not get caught up in the prestige game. We have some really innovative, smart strategies, which we suggest for parents, because we think that avoiding debt is much more important than accumulating prestige. And when I've mentioned some of our ideas to colleagues, 
They, they act like I'm suggesting child abuse. Um, but we think that somebody beginning life without owing $70,000 is better off than going to a fancy school where they've got Dijon chicken. Um, but I'd love to hear more from you than from us because one of the things we've discovered since we began writing our book, uh, promoting the book, is the stories we've heard from people and the information we've gotten is so much even more and stronger than what we felt when we were writing it, that we could write a second book just out of what we've learned on our book tour. Uh, uh, could I add one thing about the consumer reports? Uh, here's what I suggest. Uh, every college now puts online their student evaluations of professors. I happen to be a professor who was in favor of student evaluations. And by the way, if you want to see some of mine, just Google me and for some reason on my first page are my Queens College evaluations. Some of them are scathing. <laughs> some of them think I'm St. Andrew. Uh, okay, that tells you a bit, but hey, the students, we won't call them consumers or customers. We're not gonna call them patients. The students are students. They are entitled to have a view. They are entitled to expect good teaching, and if they don't get it and they wanna type it out, good. Read them. You'll get a good picture of the college. And by the way, well, no, that's enough. <laughs> somebody, somebody mentioned that they felt like they were in class this evening. I think we'd all agree it's been a very well-taught class. The book is called Higher Education with a big question mark. You can buy it uh, at the uh, back of the room or on Amazon. I want to thank our speakers for coming out tonight. And thank all of you. And you can, you can learn about uh, other Demos events coming up in the very near future on your way out. So thanks, everybody.